We're continuing in our series in Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 37, and our New Testament complementary passage is John's Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. So if you would open your Bibles to John's Revelation chapter 21, in honor of God's word, please stand. John's Revelation, chapter 21, beginning in verse 9, hear God's word. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls, The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 37, continuing the reading of God's word. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its feet, two rings on its one side, two rings on its other side. And he made two poles and he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end. 
of one piece with the mercy seat. He made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and the branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And he made it seven lamps and its tongs and its trays of pure gold. He made it and all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its breadth was a cubit. It was square and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold. Its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it. And he made two rings of gold on it under its molding on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the holy anointing oil also, and the pure fragrant incense, blended as by the perfumer. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we come to the preaching of your word, we pray that you would speak to us by that word and spirit. Reveal to us our Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I had a friend uh, who was a relatively well-known theologian uh, who used to say, probably still does, I just haven't talked to him in a while, (laughs) but, but used to say that you can summarize the entire Bible very easily. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates man in the garden. Genesis 3 to Revelation 21 is man trying to get back in. Uh, that's the rest of the story of the Bible. How do we get back to this place of peace? How do we get back to this place where illness is no longer, where death is no longer? How do we get back? And the whole message from Genesis chapter 3, but certainly here in the Exodus, 
connecting the tabernacle of the Exodus with the holy city, Jerusalem, which is coming down from the heavens, the perfect reality, we see in these pictures not only the promise, but the longing. The longing that we have for the garden. For a place where I'm no longer going to struggle with sin. A place where my fears and doubts are no longer going to be this constant worry, this constant strain, where my faith will become sight. And that's what all of these Old Testament pictures, but really all of the Scripture, is telling us. That there is a promise of God. Now, as we've been moving through the Exodus, we're coming and, and we're, we're, we're seeing a repetition. This passage, the, the, the building of the ark and, and all of these things, begin in chapter 25 and continue through chapter 26. So, so we're coming back around to these things. We're coming back around to the same material that was already mentioned and laid out for us in detail. And so the question, as we raised last week, is why? What's the point of this repetition? What is the point of coming back to this? And I think the answer to why are we repeating these things is let's focus on key words. Let's focus on a key word or two that keeps popping up in this text. Now, I'm guessing you already know what one of my points is going to be. Because I'm guessing that word jumped out at you a lot as we read through Exodus chapter 37. That word is gold. There's a lot of gold (laughs) that's being referred to. In fact, all the gold weighs up to a talent of gold. There's a lot of gold that's mentioned here in Exodus chapter 37. But before we get to that, for what it's worth, that second point is that this place is precious. This place is precious. But our first point is this place is permanent. There's a permanence to the tabernacle. And you see that permanence in the type of wood that is mentioned over and over and over again. Throughout this passage, all of the wood that is mentioned is acacia wood. Now, acacia is a wood that is stronger than hickory. It's stronger than oak. And because of the natural tannins that the tree develops as it grows, the very nature of the wood itself is resistant to rot and decay. And so the reason that God specifically says use this wood is because God is wanting this to be something that endures. God wants this to be something that doesn't fall apart in four, five, six generations, but something that will always be a testimony, always a reminder that is always going to be there. There's an enduring nature to this tabernacle. Now, yes, it's temporary. It's taken down, it's put up, 
As we mentioned last week, each of these pillars are 30 feet high. This is a lot of acacia wood. These are some heavy pieces of acacia wood, but they are temporary. In the sense that the tabernacle is broken down, the children of Israel move, they set up camp, and they re-erect the tabernacle. The very tent of God moving amongst the people of God reminds the people of their permanence in the midst of impermanence. The children of Israel at this point have absolutely no home. They're wandering through a wilderness that is owned by all of the kings. You remember the, the kings of Keterleomar who, who, who come out and ask Balaam the prophet to curse uh, the, the children of Israel because their children of Israel are moving through their property. <laughs> this is not okay. They have placed a claim on this. Canaan is not an empty land. It's a land that's we've, we've seen already. The, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, uh, the Hivites, the Jebusites. All of these are tribes that are there in the promised land that God is leading them to. As we speak right now, the children of Israel are entirely homeless. They have no land. But they are a people of God. And these people of God are pressing towards that promised land. But even that promised land itself is a picture. The writer of the Hebrews says that Abram, by faith, did not look for a home in the land of promise. For he looked for that city which is made without hands, whose builder and maker is God. That permanent city is what drove Abraham as he moved through the land of promise. And this temporary, this vagabond, this pilgrim reality is very much at the heart of our entire human angst. <laughs> it's at the heart. We want to get home. We want to come back to peace. Wouldn't you love it to be said? And God walked with you in the garden in the cool of the day. Don't you love that imagery? Just that beautiful imagery from the garden. Wouldn't that be sweet if you could say that God walks with you in the cool of the day? And there's that reality in each one. In each man, woman, boy, and girl. I'm not saying Christians or non-Christians. I'm saying every single human being knows that this world is not okay knows that this world is broken in many ways. Every single human being knows that death is wrong. And so we deny it or we rage against it. We try to overcome it. Every single human being knows that illness is wrong. And so we spend vast resources trying to conquer it. Every single human being knows there is nobody, not a soul, that you walk up to and go, hey, are we living in a perfect society? There's not a soul that would look you in the eye and go, absolutely. This place is perfect. America. 
<laughs> I love it. This is perfect. Any nation. I'm not picking on that one. But any nation. There is nowhere that anyone <laughs> will say, here, it's perfect. There's a longing. There's a longing in every man, every woman, every boy, every girl to see the brokenness around us and to turn from that and long for something right. Long for something good. And the permanence of the tabernacle, the permanence of the wood, the permanence of the acacia wood, is God saying, this temporary place is also permanent. The temporary nature of this tent broken down and put back up, is always in their midst. It's always right there. They camp around it for the next generation as they move towards the promised land. Once the temple is built, they come up to the temple every year from the farthest reaches of the land, even from other countries. If you remember from the book of Acts, during Pentecost, the people who come are from all over the known world coming up to this place, this place that says God is going to bring healing. He is going to bring wholeness. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bring harmony. He's going to bring me home. Home to that garden. Home to that place. It's a permanent reminder that God is in our midst. Young people, covenant children, have you ever asked yourself, and if you haven't yet, you will, just wait till you get a teenager, <laughs> have you ever asked yourself, why do I go to church every Sunday? Why is this so important to mom and dad? Now, maybe at this age, the reason you go to church every Sunday is because dad came into your room and said, get out of bed. Mom said, put on your clothes. <laughs> dad said, it's time to get in the car. But this really is, and, I, and I, as lighthearted as I'm being in all that, this really is the central question for young people as you grow as you move into greater independence, as you strike out on your own, as you become those arrows that are launched from the bow of your parents, as you launch out onto your own trajectory, the question is, why is this something that is important to my parents? Why is this something that I should also build my life around? And I think this tabernacle complex, this 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 very nature specifically the nature of its enduring quality i know for me and i would guess for your parents <laughs> it's what keeps me from utter despair it's knowing that god has had a people and these people don't look like me they do not speak my language. 
I have to learn an archaic language in order to be able to read their writing? These people precede me by literally millennia. And God has been tabernacling with His people. Century after century after century after century after century. Why do we sing psalms? Because they are the words inspired by God of the people with whom He has tabernacled. They are the words of the people of God lifting up their fears, lifting up their praises, lifting up their repentance, lifting up their joy to a God who is tabernacled with them. We sing hymns, prayers that were written by John of Damascus a guy who was the theologian who first confronted Islam. John of Damascus, and we pick up his song usually around Christmas time every year. We sing hymns that are translated by people like Catherine Winkworth, a woman from the 1800s who her father was a Lutheran pastor and she translated some of the absolute best songs from German into English. We sing songs by people who have experienced grief, sorrow, and have seen Christ in it and seen His healing and compassion. Beloved, you and I are caught up into something that is so much bigger than our puny lifetime. Our three score years and ten. And if by strength they're four score, yet they are days of trouble. But you and I get to be caught up in a song and in a story that absolutely is the meta-narrative for all of humanity. God bringing people back. What a joy. What a confidence. And beloved, that's what the Acacia Wood tells you. That's what you get out of some sticks of Acacia Wood. The enduring quality. The enduring strength. The enduring nature of God reconciling and dwelling. The second thing that we see in chapter 37, obviously, is this is precious. This is glorious. This is beautiful. It's the sweetest and most beautiful thing they've got. Now, it's interesting to consider how we have perverted, or we we do pervert, these gifts that God gives. I mean, you think of pastors. What a a gift God has given to me to be allowed to spend my days pouring over His Word, to be allowed to spend my life as a minister of Him, of Christ Jesus, 
All of the struggles, all of the, the difficulties, all of the challenges are minuscule compared to the joys of being able to be in people's lives and bring the gospel into their lives at some of the most hard and difficult moments, at some of the most joyous moments. I bet I attend a lot more weddings than you all do. I do also probably attend a lot more funerals. But how many people, and you can, I'm sure, think of them off the top of your head, how many people will take a position like that and turn it into their own kingdom? How many people will take that trust that has been given to them and turn it into something to abuse the flock of Christ? How many people will take that great gift and pervert it? And that's exactly what happened with the gold. (laughs) You remember later on, Hezekiah shows all of the treasures of the temple to the emissaries of the king of Babylon. Look at what we've got. Is that why that's in your Bible? Is that why the people donated? Is that why Bezalel put all this together? So that we could all thump our chests and go, look what we got. We got gold. Absolutely not. Of course not. The purpose of this is to say, this is what is most precious to us. This is what is most beautiful and glorious to us. It becomes perverted by Hezekiah's time into a status symbol. Just as we can pervert all of God's good gifts. Think of marriage. How many times does the good gift of God giving to you a helpmeet become perverted into God giving to you free housework? (laughs) How often does the, the blessing of children turn into a way for a man and a woman who really don't like each other to at least have some common purpose to not get divorced? How often do we take God's blessings and turn them into the poison that we're trying to escape, that we're trying to be freed from? That seed is there in each of us. And beloved, I think the solution is this. The solution is look at the elements. Look at the things that are covered by gold. The mercy seat. The table fellowship with God and with one another. The candlestick, the light of God, which shines out. You know in Revelation, John uses the candlestick as this is the church. This is the faithful church that is shining this light. The incense. Throughout the scriptures, the incense is always the sign, a representative of the prayers of God going up before His nostrils. Our passage here says, mingled as by a perfumer. The sweet perfume of prayer. So what is it that's covered in gold? What is it that's central? What is it that's most precious? The mercy seat? 
the place of forgiveness and reconciliation with God, the place of fellowship with God and one another, the place in which the light of God's mercy goes out through all the nations, and the prayers of God's people. How much of your life focuses on those things? You see, dotting the I's and crossing the T's is important. One of the Puritans said, he was asked, he was challenged, why are you so precise? And he said, because I serve a precise God. And that's good. But beloved, didn't that become perverted in the, in the Pharisees? The, the Pharisees, you look at them from the outside and they're doing all the right things. They're tithing mints and cumin and anise. They're doing all the things from the outside, and yet Jesus says, your heart is far from me. And beloved, I will posit this to you. I hope you will hear it, and I will say it till the day I die, God willing. When you and I start with what is truly gold, what comes out of us as people, what comes out of us as a church, what comes out of us as a congregation is attractive and beautiful and golden as well. When someone walks into this facility for the first time and sees us gathered in worship, do they see a people that are overcome with thanksgiving, with joy? A people who love fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. A people who are serious and, and impassioned in their prayer. A people who desire to be the light of God to the nations. If they do, then I will tell you, that's attractive. I love cathedrals. I love architecture. I love gorgeous buildings. I would love to have our own Northern Virginia cathedral. Stone and everything. Flying buttresses. I'd like the whole nine yards because I love the architecture. I do believe the architecture does point us out from ourselves and upwards to God. All of that. But how many of those beautiful places, the National Cathedral, <laughs> who here woke up this morning and said, huh, I might go worship at Sterling in the Cascades Conference Center or I might go to the National Cathedral because the architecture there is pretty stunning. I presume none of you did. The fact that you're here might be my first clue. But you know what I'm saying. These stunning facilities, these stunning buildings, when you walk in and you realize there's no candlestick here. There's no mercy seat here. There's no fellowship with God and one another here. There's no prayer being lifted up before Him in all of its beauty and sweetness here. There is no light to the nations. You walk into that beautiful setting and you go, yeah, no. But beloved, what will cause a man, a woman, a boy, a girl to interact with you, to cross paths with you, 
and to be shaped powerfully by Christ as a response is if they see in your life what is truly gold. If they see in your response that you are responding to that gold. John in his first epistle says, Behold what manner of love. Beloved, that's what all that gold is about. (laughs) You walk into that tabernacle, all that gold all over the place, and you know what you're going to do? You're going to go, Behold, wow. This is amazing. This is a lot of really precious stuff here. Is that your attitude towards God's love? Is that the way in which you share the reason for the hope that lies within you? Or is it to win an argument? Is it to justify yourself? Beloved, This tabernacle is enduring. God with us. Emmanuel. And this tabernacle is precious. And we know that the rest of the development of Scripture is leading us up to that day when we are there in the new Jerusalem. It's leading us to that day of consummation and promise. But right here, right now, in your journey, in your pilgrimage, the tabernacle is there, enduring and beautiful and precious.